Hey there, welcome to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Jason Barnes, and today we're joined by uh, rhinologist Dr. Garrett Choby and uh, skull-based neurosurgeon Dr. Jamie Van Gumpel, and we will be discussing clival chordoma. Thank you all so much for being here. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Uh, so I will say up front that uh, chordoma, it's hard to talk about without at least mentioning chondrosarcoma sometimes. So we will be contrasting that uh, at a few points throughout this uh, conversation. But the majority of our talk will be on uh, clival chordoma. So can you tell us uh, what does a patient present with when they have a clival chordoma? The the presentation is usually quite vague, to be honest with you. That's one of the reasons why they tend to prevent actually present with large advanced tumors because many of their symptoms may be vague or nonspecific. A number of uh, vital neurologic structures pass close by this area. So one of the more common findings on initial presentation is actually diplopia. And that's usually from uh, stretching or injury to uh, the abducens nerve of the sixth cranial nerve. Uh, usually as it passes through Dorello's canal, uh, it has a quite a long uh, intracranial course and can be stretched there. Uh, other things are, are things like uh, headache. There can be facial numbness from trigeminal involvement, uh, but usually it's, it's, it's pretty vague overall. And is there a typical patient who's affected by this? What's the epidemiology like? It's a, it's a very rare tumor. Depending on what numbers you look at, the incidence is about one in a million patients, so it's quite unusual. Usually it occurs in, in folks of middle to older adult age, so sort of 50s, 60s, 70s, although We've seen them in younger patients as well, but more classically, it's in the late middle age. And what about any risk factors? N- none specific that I'm aware of. And we're talking about clival chordoma. And before I keep saying clival and clivus through this whole uh, interview, uh, can you tell us what the clivus is? Because I know I had a hard time with this and still do. The clivus is, uh, is a fusion bone at the base of the skull that's part of the ox- occiput and part of the basisphenoid. Um, and effectively is the back of the nasopharynx and the back of the oropharynx. And what's its relationship to the sphenoid sinus, pituitary gland, brainstem, that kind of thing? So it is a difficult area to understand anatomically. It's classically broken down into three segments. In the upper one-third of the clivus is roughly from the clinoids down to the floor of the cella. And the middle one-third is, is the sphenoid part. So that's from the floor of the cella uh, down to roughly the floor of the sphenoid sinus. And then lastly, the lower third is the nasopharyngeal part, and that extends from the floor of the sphenoid the whole way down behind the nasopharynx. So with anatomy behind us, uh, what is on your differential diagnosis when you consider clival chordoma, understanding that you might not have an idea that that's what it is when a patient initially presents? Clival masses can be a lot of different things. Uh, the most common things that are not chordomas are chondrosarcomas, um, but also we see lymphomas in the clivus, adeno, uh, adenocarcinomas. I'd say the, the, the more common finding when patients present asymptomatically is uh, I get a lot of uh, um, uh, dysplasias, uh, so um, bony dysplasias that get sent to me as chordomas, uh, uh, and they can be easily diagnosed with a CT because they're not uh, typically disru- disruptive, but that's most commonly what I um, have to differentiate from a chordoma. The one thing I'll mention as well is that um, we've seen a few of these where they're actually intranasal tumors with extension, but it's subtle in the nasopharynx and nasal cavity in larger portions of the, of the, of the clivus. So we've seen a few um, nasopharyngeal carcinomas that have extended there, and we thought initially it was going to be a chordoma when in fact it was a mucosal tumor with extension into the clivus. And can you tell us a little bit about the pathophysiology? What is a chordoma? 
chordoma is, is derived from a uh, notochordal remnant. So what we think of the notochord is uh, ultimately when the spine develops, um, it becomes the discs in between the vertebral bodies. And uh, there's some, it's hard to describe a picture, I, I suppose, in this format, but that can go all the way down from the coccyx sacrum all the way through the, the subaxial spine. And then in the, in the clivus, it does some very interesting things. It takes this like bend into the um, inferior clivus. And then as it comes back up, it, it swings back more towards the posterior aspect of the clivus. Anywhere along that pathway, if those cells don't deteriorate um, or aren't told to become disc material somewhere, they can become a chordoma. Um, they, there's discussion as to whether or not benign nodal chordal remnants lead to these tumors. We don't know if that's true, although there are uh, reports of having benign nodal chordal remnants within uh, chordomas, and there are different pathologic diagnoses. There is a cell type that I can't frankly say. I know Dr. Choby's been practicing that's responsible for these. Practicing because it's, it's, a, it's a board exam question, and uh, it is the, uh, the classic soap bubble-like appearance used on histopathology, and we're going to give it a go. <laughs> Faciliferous cells. Dr. Barnes, how, how'd I do? How'd I do? <laughs> Sounds great to me. Uh, and when we talk about chordomas, uh, they're not all located at the skull base, like you said. What's the breakdown here? The majority are between either the clivus um, or the sacrum, and we, we typically say they're the third up in the um, clivus. They're a little bit over a third down in the sacrum and, and a third anywhere else in the spine. And just to back up a bit, uh, Dr. Van Gumpel, uh, there is a certain aspect of this tumor that's uh, become quite relevant. Uh, can you tell us more about that? Yeah, I mean, absent of trying to identify the cells under the microscope, right now it's more important to actually stain them from brachyuria. And uh, when we really had a hard time distinguishing between chondrosarcomas, benignal cortical cell tumors, some other types of tumors, and this tumor really gets down to them being brachyuria positive. And um, I think we'll cover it a little bit later too yet, but now a lot of the experimental therapies are actually um, potentially using brachyuria as a targeted therapy. for. This. So thankfully, there's, there's not as much... Uh, discussion as to what types of tumors they are based on what the pathology shows, it is actually a stain that can definitively diagnose this tumor. And the the reading that I've done about this topic, um, I can't say that it's entirely clear to me. Is this a malignancy? Uh, it's absolutely a malignancy. People die from this. They have metastat- metastatic disease from this. Um, and in a patient that has a chordoma, yes, we can cure them with a very good resection. Uh, um, but unfortunately, a lot of these patients will die from that disease, and they are locally progressive and also can metastasize elsewhere. So when a patient presents to your clinic, um, like I said, you don't necessarily suspect this diagnosis, and maybe they'll present with some imaging that's leaning you towards that diagnosis. Can you tell us about the imaging findings, what you would hope to obtain in terms of imaging studies and what you would see? As opposed to, I'll start here, as opposed to many other sinasal tumors, this is usually not accessible for a biopsy unless it has extensive involvement of the nasal cavity and is quite locally progressive. And you should not biopsy this lesion um, in clinic because it can seed, and um, it you have to hopefully keep this contained. It's a very important aspect of this. Yeah, agreed. There are reports certainly out there of even from surgery a seeding tumor elsewhere. 
Um, but this is a, a diagnosis largely initially made on imaging studies. Uh, and there's some pretty characteristic imaging studies you can see. Most folks come with at least a CT scan. And the CT scan usually will show a very locally aggressive and destructive lesion in the clivus. Typically, it's a midline lesion, again, arising from the notochord remnant. And that helps us to differentiate from other things like chondrosarcoma, which look very similar, but are typically off midline. MRI scan is also very important. One of the telltale signs on an MRI scan of chordoma is hyperintensity on T2 signal. And that's not the same as, as many other tumor types. Anything else you want to comment on there? Yeah, so um, just, again, getting back to this concept of them being lumped previously with chondrosarcoma and chordomas, the reason why that is is both were lesions in the clivus, um, maybe not midline lesions in the clivus, uh, but uh, lesions nonetheless that were T2 hyperintense. The CT is important um, because in a lot of chondrosarcomas, they'll get they'll get deposition of calcium within them, and they'll have and this... Um, this this specific bony appearance. Now that can happen in chordomas, so it can fool you sometimes because chordomas, although commonly are locally destructive, they can be destructive enough to have bone fragments within them and can be they can look a little bit like chondrosarcomas. And then uh, uh, notably both also contrast enhance. Now most of the other lesions that we, we've, we mentioned before in the differential diagnosis are different than that. They're not T2 hyperintense mainly. And that's the, that's the primary thing you're looking for. And something maybe we should have talked about during pathology, but can also kind of be fit here in terms of planning and what you expect. What are the different types or subgroups of, of chordoma? Most tumors are going to be classic or otherwise known as conventional chordomas. Um, there is a separate subcategory that is less and less um, being diagnosed, and that's chondroid uh, uh, chordomas. Uh, they still exist, but because, again, of that brachyuria, being able to differentiate these from, from uh, chondrosarcomas, people are not using that term as frequently, and most of those are falling into the conventional category. And then there's a dedifferentiated uh, or uh, sometimes called atypical uh, chordoma, which demonstrates a higher um, mitotic count within them. And uh, it is thought that they are probably going to be more aggressive tumors, although uh, they're so uncommon that it's hard to know for sure if that's the case. So when you suspect this tumor, um, mainly I guess you suspect it on imaging, what is your approach to management? Getting back again to uh, what we were talking about earlier again, biopsying this is not a good idea. You should have an extensive surgical plan to manage the lesion um, in a way. First off, if you can get completely around it with with um, a margin, uh, then you should. So sometimes we see these in asymptomatic lesions in the clivus, and we're able to drill around them, uh, reduce contamination. And in fact, that's what happens in the sacrum is that when these are suspected, they do a needle biopsy to confirm it, but the pathway of the needle biopsy is resected with the lesion, and they do a one-centimeter margin around this, and these can still recur despite that. There's a mystery with these particular tumors in that despite that aggressive resection in the sacrum, those tumors can be more aggressive than even intralesional, which is what we commonly do in the clivus removal. And the thought is that those tumors present so much larger than they do in the nose because they become symptomatic quicker in the nose. In the nose, however, the goal primarily, it's uncommon that we can get uh, around the lesion and take it all out, is to get an intralesional resection 
and uh, remove all pot, all tissue that it's been touching. But obviously, when it's touching the carotid arteries or the nerves, we don't do that. So our goal is to have an MR negative resection, and uh, that's important because oftentimes we will do either intraoperative MRI or immediate postoperative MRIs. And if there is positive areas that we can remove, we will go back and take those out. And in fact, when these patients are sent for proton beam later on, very commonly there'll be a residual area that we're asked to take out. And that's um, uh, one of the bigger indicators for long-term survival is having a negative MRI prior to radiation therapy. Um, and in some circumstances, we simply can't take all, out, all the disease. And our goal then is to decompress the brainstem to preserve uh, the brainstem from receiving a lot of high-dose radiation with the um, definitive therapy for this. Briefly, can you describe the surgical approach, especially for our ENT listeners, uh, the kind of transnasal approach? Yeah, again, uh, the individual goal for a tumor is dictated by what it involves in, in its imaging characteristics. But presuming we're going to do this through an endoscopic and nasal expanded approach, uh, it's a pretty extensive initial approach to this tumor. What we typically do is um, we'll raise a uh, unilateral large extended nasal septal flap and open up all the sinus on one side and tuck that flap into the maxillary sinus. Do you mind explaining what you mean by an extended flap? So yeah, we sure. don't mean more forward. Yeah. We mean the floor, right? Yeah, good, good, good clarification. So when I raise these flaps, I will uh, bring an incision from the uh, osseous sphenoid along the high nasal septum about a centimeter below the skull base. Once I reach the head of the middle turbinate, I'll turn north and bring this entire nasal vault anteriorly to the mucocutaneous junction, then onto the floor and include the entire mucosa, the floor of the nose, into the inferior meatus. So this is a huge distal paddle, paddle excuse me. Now, as opposed to most of our transnodal cases where we tuck that into the nasopharynx, that's going to be our site of tumor resection. So again, we'll do a large entrostomy and tuck that into the, into the maxillary sinus for safekeeping during surgery. Then I'll usually also raise a contralateral, a smaller flap as well and do a similar sinus surgery on the contralateral side to put it into the maxillary sinus. We'll do a large sphenotomy open up to the planum, uh, as well as a posterior septectomy. And then we'll begin to uh, drill down the floor of the sphenoid sinus, in most cases, to get it flushed to the clivus. Dr. Van Gump and I like to use the vidian nerve as well as a marker to lead us back towards the carotid artery. So we usually uh, trace that back as well as we drill and get exposure in the entirety, again, depending on where the tumor is involved, from the cella to the lower third of the clivus with exposure. One of the challenging parts is dividing the nasopharyngeal soft tissue. This is extremely tenacious, firm tissue. We usually make a, a midline incision with a needle bovi and then carefully resect that and dissect that laterally, but it's very tenacious and stuck to the underlying clival bone as well. Following surgical resection, Dr. Van Gumpel, you started to talk about this. What's the role of radiation? Yeah, I mean, there's some recent literature about de-escalating therapy for this, but most people with a diagnosis of a, of a, a cordoma um, will be sent to a proton beam thera uh, therapy center. Now, not everybody believes in that, okay? So some people do still deliver classic IMRT photon-based therapy. Some centers still use gamma knife to treat the cavity, depending on how, how small the cavity itself is where surgery, where surgery occurred. Um, but most people are using proton beam, and the, and the reason for that is because the dose fall-off curves allow us to achieve a much higher radiation than we would otherwise would be able to achieve with, um, with photons. And the, the goal typically is in the, in the, in the mid-70s uh, for treating these. And why proton beam is so important is because to achieve that dose so close to the brainstem, we need a steep fall-off curve. And 
having a high dose is simply because the cells don't seem to be very responsive to the radiation themselves. So delivering a high dose has been shown, at least in series, especially from MGH, to improve survival and reduce risk of recurrence. And you have spoken about brachyuria earlier today. Can you talk more about that and its relationship with treatment? So there are a number of experimental therapies, one uh, for increasing sensitivity to radiation and, uh, and another targeted therapy that are using brachyurea because it's a unique thing that's only found in these tumors. It's uh, found uh, when the body's developing but should not be present in any other cells currently. So it's a unique target, and I think eventually there'll probably be a therapy um, based on brachyurea. Not that we have the answers now, but that's probably going to be the key to these things. And how do you counsel patients on outcomes, expectations, prognosis, that kind of thing? You know, a lot of it has to do with what, you know, we start with. And if we know we have a small mid-clival tumor and we get around it, I mean, I, my expectation is that they will potentially go on to 10 years old disease. But, you know, if you have a 9-centimeter tumor that it, that is abutting or going around the carotids and, and you're debulking it, um, that tumor will recur, and I tell them that, uh, you know, we have to watch it closely. There's usually a honeymoon period after surgery, so for a couple of years things look great after they get proton beam, and then uh, and then we are then treating, and, and the management of recurrent chordoma is even more controversial, right? And it has to do with what the um, comorbidities of each surgery are, but these surgery, these patients can have a lot of surgery later on if they have recurrences. Yeah, and it, with ongoing revision and repeat surgeries, as, as we some, do somewhat frequently here, um, the challenges with reconstruction is also uh, challenging in many scenarios with uh, radiated tissue and previously operated tissue. That's, it's a real challenge with these high-flow uh, posterior fossa leaks to get them to stop after multiple revision surgeries in a radiated field. And what's your follow-up for these patients? So uh, initially, we see them uh, every few weeks for the debridements postoperatively, make sure they're healing well and there's no CSF leak. And then long-term, we typically follow them with an MRI scan. Uh, Dr. Van Gumbel can comment a little bit more about that. But usually, uh, you know, roughly three-ish months after surgery, then again, six months later on and six months later on. If they look good or doing well, maybe even then annually or every six months thereafter. Uh, for the first several years, we do a six-month MRI. And uh, a lot of patients will show some brainstem reaction to the radiation, depending on the size of the tumor. What is also interesting, too, is that um, those T2 signal changes that we think are synonymous with tumor. We see that very commonly in residual bone. Um, it is helpful to be very aggressive with bony resection so that you're not confused by that later on. Uh, so this is a case, this, these are tumors not to be timid on bony removal, to be quite honest with you. But over time, you'll see that, that the marrow of the clivus will change quite a bit and it uh, becomes confusing with these. Is there morbidity related to extensive bony removal? It all depends on where these things are in the clavus. So we've been talking this whole time about how these tumors are all the same in the clavus, which they're not. Um, upper clavicle chordomas have a different prognosis than lower clavicle chordomas, and lower clavicle chordomas themselves, and it's been thought there's many pathways for them to leave the, the uh, area of origin. Um, but they also can have instability. So if we do take down uh, that lower third of the clavus, like Dr. Choby was talking about, there is some risk of having some spinal instability long-term, especially if the apical ligament or the attachment from the, the bottom of the skull down to the odontoid is disrupted. The real risk starts to be when we have to take out the, um, uh, the condyle on one side of that, which is part of the clivus, and then there's a lot of discussion about whether or not one needs a fusion then. 
And, uh, and also just briefly mention the morbidity with the tumor itself or surgery, especially with cranial nerves. So the sixth nerve, the fifth nerve, and then of course, the ultimate, the carotid artery, which needs to be worked uh, uh, very judi- worked around very judiciously in this area. And these tumors almost always have abutment, if not encasement, of, of the carotid arteries. I'd like to end with a summary, but before I do, anything you'd like to add that we didn't talk about that would be worth mentioning? Um, having seen a lot of these tumors, I'll say, you know, you, you watch a case as a resident, and you see the nice, suckable, uh, soft jelly material that oftentimes it is, and then... I will say um, one out of every 10 is, is, is a very bloody tumor or a firm tumor or a very, uh, uh, some of these have ceramic type of bone that, that, that occurs around. They can be very challenging cases. And again, um, I know Dr. Choby's mentioned this earlier, but these are cases really not to, not to take lightly and uh, to be treated in multidisciplinary teams that have experience, to be quite honest. I agree 100%. So in summary, a clival chordoma classically presents with vague symptoms like headache and possible diplopia. Um, This is a tumor that affects adults in their 50s and 60s, um, and the pathophysiology includes the kind of pathognomonic uh, cell, the fissiliferous cell, which is a soap bubble-like cytoplasm cell. Um, Chordomas can be divided into classic or conventional, chondroid, and dedifferentiated, though chondroid is kind of falling out of favor. Uh, imaging can include CT to identify any bony erosion, and MRI uh, most classically is described with a high-intensity T2 signal. Treatment involves surgery, uh, which needs to be extensive, especially in the bony aspect, uh, and then oftentimes uh, postoperative radiation is required. And prognosis is dependent on where the tumor is, how large the tumor was, and the extent of resection. Um, uh, and can be variable. Anything else you'd like to add? Thanks so much for the time. Thank you. Thanks. It's now time to bring this episode to a close, but before we do, I'll end with a few questions. As always, I'll ask a question, wait for a few seconds to allow you to pause or think about the answer, and then give the answer. So the first question is, describe the clivus. The clivus is a sloping midline bone that sits just anterior to the foramen magnum and posterior to the dorsum cellae. It's classically divided into three parts. The upper one third is posterior to the dorsum. The middle third is posterior to the sphenoid and the lower third is the posterior nasopharynx. Next question, what is the most commonly affected cranial nerve in this pathology. The most commonly affected cranial nerve here is gonna be cranial nerve six, which leads to a lateral gaze palsy. Next question, what are the three classically described types of chordoma? These three are classic or conventional, chondroid, and dedifferentiated. Next, what's the classic histological feature of a chordoma? The classically described cell is the fissiliferous cell, which is a soap bubble type cell, uh, which is basically a large cell containing vacuolated cytoplasm. And for our final question, what is the almost pathognomonic MRI finding of chordoma? 
Chordomas have high signal intensity on T2, and this is particularly seen in the central aspect of the tumor, and that's pretty specific for a chordoma. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>